chapter 52. Go verses 1 through 12. As Casey, Casey said, that blue Bible, you get a page number to make it easier to find it. It's 355. Isaiah 52, verse 1. It says, Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here? declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. How are we doing? Morning. Not a lively bunch this morning. We'll get you there. Uh, so pray for Chandler Cruz. He is struggling right now. He's on a cruise in the Bahamas right now. Struggling. He's like, uh, I got a question. Can I go on a cruise? I'm like, it's, I'm not your dad, but yes, as your... <laughs> Yes, and then a week later, I got another question. I'm like, what? Can I also go to Nashville the week before? I'm like, goodness <laughs> gracious. So he was actually in Nashville last week writing songs with his brother. Uh, so Chandler is just struggling a lot in life right now. <laughs> and I sent him one of my favorite SNL clips. It's Garth Brooks and Will Ferrell. And Garth Brooks is trying to write a song. <laughs> and he can't figure it out, and he's like... Gosh, I would sell my soul to the devil if I could have one hit song and then poof, Will Ferrell pops up <laughs> as the devil. And it's hilarious. I don't endorse all of it, but it's funny. <laughs> but that language, I would sell my soul to the devil if I could, is sort of like modern vernacular for I would give everything. This thing is so important. I would sell my soul to the devil. The Bible never uses language like that. The close it gets is the Apostle Paul says, I wish I could be in hell 
if this thing would happen. That's as close as we get to sort of, I'd sell my soul to the devil. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, this is what Paul, this is the ache in Paul's heart that would say, I'd rather be in hell if this thing would be true. He says this in verse 3. I wish that I myself were accursed, banished, cut off from Christ. Why, Paul? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is a Jew, and he's preaching, and his Jewish brothers and sisters are, are not listening. And he says, I wish I would be cut off from Christ and all its benefits so that they might have what I have. It's so important to him. Well, Paul goes on to say, here's the only thing that's going to remedy this. I can't cut myself off for the sake of my brothers. This is what must happen. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. It's one of the most beautiful, I'll call it hyperlinks in the Bible, where it connects two sections of Scripture. This connects Romans with Isaiah, the exact passage we're in. And this is Paul's summary statement of what my brothers need. Verse 14, Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written in the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What's Paul saying? I wish I could be in hell if they would just listen. But that's not an option. The only thing Paul has is that somebody would get up and go and preach good news so that his Jewish brothers and sisters would hear the message that Isaiah was preaching hundreds of years prior. Paul's preaching now, and we try faithfully to preach every Sunday. It is the good news of what God has done. Maybe you're invited here and you haven't been to church in a while. Here's what most people by default think they're getting into when they enter sort of some religious gathering. There's going to be somebody getting up, to talk from a book that's sacred and they're going to give them stuff to do that he or she or whatever deity said is the way you're supposed to live life and then you might earn some sort of smile or approval from that deity as you go out and do what he or she is telling you to do. That's not not in Christianity, but the banner over everything we do is this. We have good news to preach, to teach, to tell, to share, to sing. How beautiful are the feet of those who what? Bring good news. Here's my whole point. We are a good news people. This is our heritage. It's always been our heritage. There was not a season where we were like the good advice people. And then we switched over like, I'm going to go with news now. We have always been good news people. Isaiah is saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's our heritage. And if you are not a Christian yet, what you're being invited into is a heritage of this. People who have a good news to share. Period. There's lots of things that God's going to do in your life. He's going to change stuff. He's going to move. He's going to have you do this and not do this. But before all of that, he wants you to hear about the good news. Period. Here's what we're walking through this morning out of Isaiah. We have good news of peace and salvation. So if you're a note taker, you're like, thank you. You've really simplified that. That's what we're doing. We got good news and we've got good news of peace and salvation. Period. That's what I want to walk through this morning from what Andrew just read for. So let's pause and just let God prepare our hearts for what he wants to say through Isaiah.
God, I confess that most of what I want is advice and ways to fix whatever I think the problem is in front of me. And I think we're a lot like that. None of us ever really think what we need is just to hear some news and to hear some news that we've already heard before and hear it again. But the way your Bible comes to us in just our own human forgetfulness, it seems like that's what we need more than we realize, is to be reminded of good news, of peace and salvation that is not far off but is here because our God reigns. So be with us this morning again, Jesus. We love you. Amen. And so if you're brand new, just to catch you up, we are in this series in Isaiah. Let me get back to where we were. We're walking through Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 55. And if you've never opened a Bible, you're like, none of that makes any sense to me. I get it. But Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 55. This, the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. It's one long poem in the original Hebrew. And we've been walking through this week by week, looking at this servant, this mysterious suffering servant that's being talked about. It's been a very sort of poetic book. It's been hard to teach at times because we take it in these big chunks. But that's where we're at. Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 55. And the following Sunday, we'll have Easter Sunday, and we'll preach the good news of a resurrected Christ. But that's where we're at. But here's where I want to catch us up. Here's the three contexts of Isaiah. Maybe we forgot. There's a issue. I know that's not, I'm a math guy. I'm not an English guy. I know that's supposed to have an end there. <laughs> Track with me. A issue. A issue is being addressed in this book. The A issue is Israel is in exile. They've been carried off into a land that is not their home. That is the sort of center ring in this issue. But beyond that, if you sort of zoom out, there is the issue, and that is Israel's sin. And just to track, just, here's the exile. Jeremiah 39.9 says this. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, this is a guy working for Babylon, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of all the people who had been left in the city and those who had deserted to him and all the people who had remained. So historically, here's what's happening. Babylon had come and got sort of the cream of the crop. Chandler Cruz, gone. <laughs> Josh left. They come back again. Josh still left. They take another cream of the crop and then they take another cream of the crop and then eventually they take most of the people off into exile and they leave a little remnant in Jerusalem as Babylon creates this sort of Babylonian captivity. That's the A issue. But if you dig below the surface, why is that happening? Is it because Nebuchadnezzar's just a big jerk and Persia has too much power? Yes, but however, underneath it, a God who we believe controls every aspect of human history says this is exactly why it happens. In Chronicles, he says this, so all Israel was, was recorded in the genealogy, and these written in the book of the kings of Israel. Here's his point. And now Judah, that would be the people of God, Israel, was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So why is all this happening? Because Israel, who was supposed to be in a covenant relationship with God, like a covenant marriage, we're going to follow you through faith. They breached that, and God shipped them off into exile using these human leaders. That's the issue. But then this whole book has all this sort of poetic uh, future hope that's going to trickle out. And especially next week, we're going to get to the heart of Jesus. We're going to really get to see him. But all this future hope, because there is a bigger issue in all this, and it's our issue that all of us are in exile and in sin. Like you came in here and you're like, I'm going to figure out the church thing. 
I just want, the way the Bible would say humanity works is we're all sinners, and because of our sin, we're in exile, in captivity, and here's the scary part. We don't even know it. Like the first 18 years of my life, I thought I was killing it. And then someone presented this holy God, and my sin is being egregious and horrific and deserving of punishment. And there was only one way to fix that, and that's Jesus Christ. We are in sin, and we are captives to our sin. Jesus says it this way, very plainly. Everyone who commits sin, I don't want to do a show of hands, but if I did, <laughs> is a slave of sin. So you come in here, are you a slave? Absolutely not. Are you a sinner? Yes, Jesus would say logically then the conclusion is you are a slave to that sin. Another way to say it is you're in exile. I'm in exile. If left to ourselves. So Isaiah, as we unpack this poem week by week, those are the three horizons. The exile horizon that Israel needs to be saved from, the sin that caused their exile they need to be saved from, and then further than that, humanity's problem that we are sinners and we're in captivity, we need to be saved from that. That is what we're going to do. And next week, I, I'm very excited about the message because next week, this week is sort of, what is God doing to fix all this? And next week is the most beautiful imagery in this entire book of Isaiah, and it's how specifically he does it with this suffering servant. But this week we're looking at what is God doing? And I want to camp out mainly on this one verse. So Isaiah 52, go with me to verse 7. Andrew already read it. And then we'll walk through this good news. Isaiah 52, verse 7. This is what Paul just quoted. And this is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the message of Israel here in Christianity in this room is how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The image is the remnant left in Jerusalem and somebody's running across to tell them good news and he gets to the city walls and says, good news, there's peace. I've got good news of happiness. There's salvation. I've got good news. You just got to listen to it. That's where we're at. Is this good news? Just to give you a little context of how Israel feels, to sort of get at a gut level, sort of unpacking their journal entries, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 137. This is one of the more heart-wrenching songs in the Bible. And picture it like a collective communal journal entry for Israel before this good news had arrived. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept, and we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing of us one of those songs of Zion. Just the context is if somebody comes in, takes over America and Christianity is public enemy number one and they enslave us and imprison us and they have us sing Amazing Grace mockingly. Sing that song again about that Amazing Grace, you Christian Westerners. Tell me about that song. 
That's what's happening. They had us sing songs of Zion. Verse 4, how shall we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above as my highest joy. Pause right there and you can flip back. That is their reality. They're in a foreign land. They said, how can we sing? All we can do is cry. And then Isaiah comes in and says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet that bring good news that that Psalm 137 song is no longer the song we have to sing. We get to sing a new song. Good news about peace. And now the peace has arrived. So like I said, here's the three just horizons. We got those, the A, the the, the bad English, and the R. The A issue, here's, there is no peace because they are in exile, pretty simply. And now the good news says, hey, there is peace. Now, well, where do we get that peace? Let's look together, verse 8 through verse 11 of chapter 52. The voice of your watchmen, so these are the men around the city watching, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm, which is a theme throughout of all Isaiah, the strength of God's arm. Before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Verse 11. Here's the call now. Post good news. Depart, depart. Those are those in exile in foreign lands, singing amazing grace and being mocked. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The good news has arrived. Peace is here. Just to give you a little historical context, so especially the Bible is a, the most controversial book in the world. It claims claims bigger than any other books that's ever come across as this claim. But historically, what's happening is really happening. So here's how captivity worked. In 605, 597, and 586, those were the three waves of deportations into exile. So Daniel, who's in the fire, very famous biblical character, he's one of those people that get taken away. And now what we're reading in Isaiah is the other said, the bookend of that, where now they're being returned. And they return in three waves as well. They return in 536, 457 and 444. Zerubbabel, great name. Nehemiah, great name. And Ezra. Zerubbabel brings people. Nehemiah brings a new city. And Ezra brings religious authority. And he opens up the word of God again. And what he's saying is, depart, depart from where you've been. Time to come back. There is good news. There is peace now horizontally. You are no longer going to listen to the Babylonians. Come back. That's good news. This has happened. But here's the second question that I think about. Is they could come back from their sort of horizontal situation, their circumstances, and come back and they could still have a major problem, that being the issue that God could still be furious with them. It's like back when I was in high school, long before I was a holy man of the cloth, I used to do dumb things. One of them was shoplift quite a bit. And I only got caught once, but it was a bad catch because the cops got me. And they brought me home to my house. I'm like, at least I, I, no one's supposed to be home. And I pull up to my house, and all my neighbors and all my parents and everyone's just sitting in the front yard as I get out of the back of a cop car. <laughs> Circumstances from shoplifting over. Punishment was the embarrassment riding in a cop car for 15 minutes. Now I get out. 
8913 West Ironwood Drive, standing before my dad, what happens? The fury and wrath of a father <laughs> watching his son being dropped off by the police comes upon me. Israel is now back. Is God still angry? He could say, come back, and you better figure this out. How mad is God still? Do they have peace with God? Let's flip back to Isaiah 51. I want to hear God talk about his anger, just so we get a picture of how he's wanting to be portrayed. Isaiah 51, we're going to read verse 17 through 21. This is God describing his anger at his kids who have been dropped off after shoplifting. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So he's using analogy of being drunk with, I'm so fierce, it's like you're drinking all my wrath of alcohol and you're just drunk, staggering fools. Verse 18. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Verse 21. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Stop right there. So the picture is, God is furious, if you did not pick up on that. He's furious. You have drunk the cup of my wrath. I did this to you. This exile is not that guy's fault, that guy's fault. It's mine. It's because I'm so angry with how you've defiled our relationship. I am furious. Now, here's what God could say as they come back. And you've got a short leash. You've got this much wiggle room left. You're on thin ice, Josh. If you go out and do this stupid stuff again, I am going to crush you. Verse 22, what does God want Israel to know? Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall not drink anymore. Verse 23, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. What does God say? In the middle of verse 22, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. I mean, that is beautiful. Because they've been walking with Yahweh for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the biggest disciplinary issue they've ever faced is exile. This is a big deal. This is like America come to terms with being a segregated nation for so long. you got to face this. And what's going to be the result from God as he looks at Israel who have defiled the faith that was given to them? He says, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And then prophetically, poetically, he says, I will take that wrath and I will place it on another. So as Israel comes back, what they need to know is the anger of God is no more. They have peace with God. Which takes us to the third horizon, our issue. Is God angry with you in this room? 
There's an answer to that question. That's not speculative. You don't have to flip a coin. You don't have to go see a medium. You don't got to talk to a counselor. You don't need to see a therapist. The Bible has the answer. Is God angry with you? Here's what I know. Most of us, even us happy, joyful people, walk around with a level of like defeat, and I probably am not living up to whatever standard is out there. Even if I've never opened this, I know like I'm just not doing that good. Even Chandler Cruz, the happiest man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> like we just had this training with our staff. This counselor came in and talked about it takes 10 positive, encouraging words to kill every one negative thought that ever comes at you. He's like, that's how all of us are. We just hear the negative and we feed, it feeds this narrative that I'm not good enough. I'm not great enough. I'm not righteous enough. I keep screwing up. I keep screwing up. He went on to talk about limbic resonance. That's a part of your brain that sort of tells stories. And he says, limbic resonance is like a smoker. So I grew up with smoking parents. I kind of miss the smell of smoke. I hate vape. You know, it's like, I love a good smoky house. It's just, <laughs> but like I walk into a house that reeks of smoke and it takes me back to grandma's house and grandpa's house. Just, he says, we're all like that. We have this thing in our brain that takes us back. And it's like, what does it feel like to be in our home of origin around our parents? Here's what I know about all of us. When we think about God, that limbic resonance is negative. We all think, oh, gosh, I'm supposed to do this. 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 He's probably not happy. Israel was supposed to do this, supposed to do this, supposed to do this. And he says, I have taken my wrath and I've placed it on another. I'm not angry anymore. And there's a better wrath absorber in the New Testament. Here's how Jesus Christ is described by his friend, the Apostle John. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. What is propitiation? It's a theological word that means so much. It simply means this. Somebody has to absorb the wrath that is due for you and for me. And John describes Jesus like this. This is love. That he stood in between you and the wrath that you deserve because all those narratives in your head, although not of all of them true, there is a sliver of truth that you have not lived up. You have not been righteous. You have not been faithful. You've not been faithful in your home, in your marriage, with God. It's true. All that stuff's true. And there's wrath coming for sin, the Bible says. However, Jesus steps in the way and he is the propitiation. He took all the wrath. How much? Until he bled his last drop of blood and on a cross said, it is finished. What was finished? The wrath had done everything it needed to do. And now I just want to tell you in this room, Jesus followers, God is not angry. And that's not like you clap and you walk out of here like, oh, that's all I needed. That's why we show up every Sunday to be reminded that we have peace. There's beautiful news coming from these feet that show up and say, there's good news. What's the good news? That you have peace. Israel got peace. They were out of exile. Israel got peace. They were no longer uh, making God angry. And we have the ultimate peace. We have a love that is a propitiation love that took the wrath. And now we have Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 
We could end there, and most religious talk tries to end there with just trying to deal with the fact that God might or is angry with you. But we have more than that. We also have good news of salvation. Let's read this same verse again. What is the good news of salvation? How beautiful upon the mountains, verse 7, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What else is this news like? Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. Christianity is a happy religion and not cheesy, nerdy, religious Christian happiness, like a gut level, a heart level. We have good news of happiness, of joy. The angels showed up at the birth of Jesus and said, behold, I have good news, a gospel of great joy that's for all the people. We have good news of salvation for all the people. And just to remind you of the context so we can Walk through the A issue, the issue, and our issue. What is Israel's main complaint in this season of life? It's not super complicated. It's the ET issue. They want to go home. They're in exile. They're not in home. If you could fix this, God, our issue is we want to go home. That's what salvation will look like to us. We get to return to that place which you promised us. Does God, give him that. Absolutely. Chapter 52, verse 1 and 2, the very beginning. Let's see what salvation looks like for these Jewish men and women in exile. Here's how he describes their homeland. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garment. Zion is a word for Jerusalem. Then, now, and forever, Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated. O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion. What is Isaiah saying? What is God saying through Isaiah? He says, they're in captivity. Jerusalem is overrun. It's in shambles. It is not what it used to be. He says, put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem. I am not done with you. He also says... No more will the uncircumcised or the unclean come into you. What's this point? This exile is never going to happen like this again, I promise. And God is true to his word. This is the final exile that God's people ever enter into. He says, come back to Jerusalem. What else does he say? Go to Isaiah 52, verse 11. Then he gives them instructions. We read this earlier. What is salvation going to look like? Well, they get to go home. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. They get to go home. The issue of the exile, the salvation is here. They get to return home. But the issue beneath the issue is this. Israel was in sin. That's why they were there. Have they received salvation for the sin that got them there? This is what's fascinating about Isaiah, is the answer is, ah, ah, there's no like, and I've, once and for all, there's no it is finished statements in here. It's like, they get to return to life as it was. Being the people of God with the commandments of God, the priestly system and sacrificial system that God has set up, they get to return back to life as it was. Is it going to be better than it was before? That's the question. We get a return. And here's the sad reality is it's not as great as it used to be. 
They return. Zerubbabel brings the people back. Ezra brings the Bibles back and starts Bible studies and stands up and preaches. Nehemiah brings civic order back. He builds a wall around the city. He's sort of the mayor of the town. And they get life back as normal. It's like, all right, how is life going for them now that the exile's over and they're back? You don't want to turn there, but we got it on the slide here. This is out of Ezra. This is the description of life after Isaiah's long dead. They're back in their land. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Don't change the screen. Is it going to be better? Are we closer to experiencing heaven on earth? Next slide. You need to listen to older people. Why? Because they have perspective. You don't. Here's what the older people would say in this moment. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's house, old men who had seen the first house, that would be the temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. Though many, the youngsters, shouted for joy. What's this telling us? Is that God could fix this exile problem, fix all these sort of temporal problems for Israel and bring them back to the system that he once set up. But that system is a fading system. The temple was a temporary part of their religious experience. It's not getting better. There still is not a permanent solution that they can bank on. And as you read the Old Testament, it's like, gosh, there's got to be something more. 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 How is Israel ultimately going to be saved as they're back to this sort of subpar temple system, doing the same religious stuff over and over and over again? Here's the thing that the Bible also does a good job of. It gets us closer and closer to the goal through its pro pro prophetic and poetic writing. Verse 12, I think, is where we see the gospel most clearly in this Section. Let's read chapter 52, verse 12. How was Israel actually saved in this time? Here's God's description to them. You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. He's talking about in the moment there. How are they going to be saved? How are they going to walk out of Babylon? Are they going to sprint with, you know, all the gun carriers in the room like, da, 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 da. <laughs> Just walk out. Strut out. Walk as slow as you want. I'm in front of you, and I'm behind you. Go. That's different, because their first salvation story, namely the Exodus, the original Exodus, is a far different story. Because the same word, you shall not go out in haste. In the book of Exodus, this is how their first exodus is described. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we're all going to die. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. You see the picture there. Their first exodus, they had to run out so fast that they could not finish baking bread. Why do we take communion every Sunday? Because Jesus says, take this and remember me. But part of the crunch you experience every time you eat that cracker, that stale, gross cracker, is to remind this part of the story. That when they were first saved, they had to go out so fast that they could not even bake bread. They just got this little cracker piece. And he says, eat that and remember the Passover. And now we're fast forward a little further down the story. And now God's command is this. Walk out. Do not go in haste. Do not sprint. Do not be scared. Just chill, the young kids would say. And God will be in front of you. And God will be behind you. Like, how soothing is that? Dallas Willard, a famous theologian, USC professor. Somebody said, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would you use? Think of all the options. Loving, pure, joyful, kind, gentle, faithful, duh, duh, duh. He said, without missing a beat, relaxed. Why? Because he's the God who tells us to go. Don't run, don't sprint, don't try to earn anything which I've freely given. Just walk, and I'm in front of you, and I'm behind you. Christians, that's the gospel message that you've probably forgotten a little bit as you've entered this room. You did nothing to earn your salvation. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. How did you become saved? You received a gift. How did Israel get saved in this moment? They walked out as a gracious gift from their God, and he was in front of them, and he was behind them. That is the good news that we must preach, that there is peace, that God is no longer angry, and there's salvation that is not to be earned. It's just to be received and enjoyed as the people of God. That's it. Now, what do we do with this good news? Like, I rarely have like, all right, here's the steps, but I've got some steps now because they're in this. Here's the two things we got to do, and they rhyme. You're welcome. (laughs) We got to sing. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen. What do they do? They lift up their voice. And what do they do? They sing for joy. Why? Because the good news has been brought, the good news of peace and salvation. So we are a singing people. And here's my encouragement, especially to you men that don't sing. Sing one song. Your kids, your grandkids need to hear a man singing joyful songs. You say, Grandpa, why do you sing so loud and terribly? (laughs) Terribly genetics loud, the gospel. I received a gift that I didn't earn. I spent most of my life trying to train wreck everything. And there were some beautiful feet that showed up one day and said, I've got good news for you of peace and salvation. The other thing is we want to bring. Here's how I'll say it to you. Bring the good news to people or bring the people to the good news. We're three weeks away from Easter. I want you right now in this moment, as you think about this passage and the people in your life, think about the Paul burden, the ache in his heart. I would rather be in hell than to see them go another day without knowing Jesus. Who are those people in your life that do not know Christ yet? 
Maybe it's the people you invited here this morning. Great, it's an easy prayer. But who are you praying for earnestly that good news of peace and salvation would come to them? Pray for them in this moment. We're going to sing. We're going to bring. We are good news people. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father, for the followers of your son, Jesus, I pray for just a reminder of the entrance into your family, the entrance into your salvation. And it is simply good news that was once preached or taught or sang or prayed or spoken over us by somebody. And we received it. We did not sprint towards it. We did not impress you enough for you to open your mouth to share it with us. None of that's true. You simply gave us the good news of what you've done. And we received it. So fill our hearts again with our first love of knowing you simply by your gospel. And God, for those of us who are thinking about people in our life that need to know you, God, I pray that we would be earnest, that we would be passionate, that we would not be too easily distracted by the shininess of the world to lose sight of the fact that there are people that do not know you yet. And that we would be a church that brings the gospel to people. And we would be a church, a gathering that brings people here to hear the gospel. And God, that people would come to know your son because of all these very ordinary, average people in this room taking the good news of what you've done to a world that so desperately needs it. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.